Welcome, friends and listeners, to the next episode of Aftermath. Be sure to follow us on social media for updates, decrees from the Shadow Council, and important dates in Aftermath history. You can find us on Twitter at Group Fire Pit, on Instagram at Fire Pit Creative Group Official, on Facebook at facebook.com slash firepitcreativegroup, and on YouTube at Fire Pit Creative Group. You can also email us at firepitcreativegroup at gmail.com. Without further ado, here's the next episode. Enjoy! Pit Creative Group presents Aftermath, Episode 18, La Via Strangiato. Meryl Ganaya was exhausted. In the last 24 hours, she rested little, spending most of her time tending to injuries, both superficial and serious, caused by the latest dust-up between Phoenix law enforcement and those from the lower decks. The law division contended the altercation was caused by dissidents openly opposing the Phoenix Council. Ganaya didn't know anything about that. What she did know was the abrasions and contusions seemed primarily caused by batons and electroshock devices designed to disarm or render others helpless. One patient in particular, Melinda Wyndham, was beaten repeatedly, so much so that she miscarried the baby Ganaya was unable to save. This tragedy disturbed the physician. Even if Miral was able to save the child in utero, she knew the Phoenix Council would insist she terminate the pregnancy. After all, Wyndham was a subclass citizen. Sex wasn't explicitly forbidden, but permission from the central processor was required to conceive a child, which, given Melinda's status in the Phoenix Project, made that unlikely. Now, Ganaya watched at a distance as Melinda, or Mindy as she was called, lay in a coma. The younger woman appeared peaceful, but a variety of other health issues, arguably the result of rationed pharmaceuticals and therapies, threatened the woman's life. Mindy had no visitors, except for her lover, Mike Helms, a man from the maintenance and pest control sector. Helms was joined by his roommate, Professor John Bath, who seemed to be there more to support Helms than the comatose woman who lay in the dim, limited confines of the infirmary. Ganaya walked cautiously from behind the plastic curtain. She stood near John Bath, who sat hunched over. You need to sleep, John. You don't look so hot yourself, doctor. Ganaya touched Bath's shoulder. She's stable now. John stiffened. I'm not leaving Mike. 
I understand, Ganaya said. But being in the green stream is taking its toll on your metabolism. More than twelve hours in the transference module, and you haven't eaten, slept, evacuated. Bath glared, dark circles surrounding red eyes. That's what you're worried about? He raised his voice, looking over at Mike and Mindy. You're concerned I haven't taken a shit? I don't need to inform you of your brain's need for rest, Dr. Bath, to process what you've experienced as both simulacrum and human organism. Your body is generating hormones at an accelerated rate to respond to the stressors in and out of the green stream. Bath squeezed the bridge of his nose. I'm aware. Then you also understand that the computer on Liberty Island, it... it affected Donna. Kanaya hesitated a moment, recalling her recent conversations with the engineer in the lab. When Donna Chang ported through the green stream into a robot body on the surface, she plugged into an old mainframe computer and downloaded unvalidated software to teach her how to repair John's damaged simulacrum. Ever since, Chang seemed preoccupied, busying herself writing algorithms or code, or redesigning the architecture for new technology. I'm concerned, Meryl continued, that prolonged experience in the green stream, in the robot bodies, is having an impact on you. On all of you. Bath's eyes narrowed, then opened wide. The chief surgeon's point was well taken. The fact that he was unable to think through multiple logic problems simultaneously, or reconcile what his and Cuddy's next step should be from both a moral and intellectual position, suggested he was mentally and physically compromised. You're right, John yielded, running splayed fingers through his orange hair. He felt pinprick ports of entry at the back of his head, where thin, fiber-optic needles pierced his skin and skull. Kanaya nodded at her patient in the chipped metal and fiberglass bed. She'll get the best care she can. I promise, John. When John stood, his back cracked. Yeah, that's what bothers me. He stepped past Mural and out of the hospital. If Ganaya understood anything about the intractable professor, she knew the comment wasn't a slight against her or her expertise. Bath distrusts the Phoenix Council and openly criticized the central processor's regulation and rationing of healthcare, food, and other services for people like Mindy, citizens whose labor was critical to the operation of their confined society, but whose physical and cognitive fitness were questioned by their masters. From her youth, to her medical studies, to her career as a physician, Ganaya knew rules and consistency were important. She was not one to challenge the order of things. But seeing Mike Helm's devotion to his lover, watching overused machines stabilize her, she silently struggled with whether rationing care was just, fair, humane. Mural detested this nagging feeling, but trying to ignore it made it omnipresent. She recalled what she learned from teachers, textbooks, ancient wisdom like that of Artabest Yasht, who, in the Venedad, declared that of all the healers, namely those who heal with the knife, with herbs, and with sacred incantations, the last one is the most potent, as he heals from the very source of diseases. Meryl was neither Zoroastrian nor Muslim, but she secretly longed for the kind of spirituality that would help her better understand, better treat her patients, especially now, as matters of life and death felt so immediate.
Castro was escorted to one of the larger, more stable tents in the Brooklyn shantytown. He sat in a semicircle of watchful eyes and gnarled, wringing hands. There were maybe twenty or more men and women in the tent, some sitting, most standing. My name is Esther, said the old woman, as she reached across warm embers, handing the general a tin cup. Here. Castro didn't reject the leaden liquid, but couldn't smell or eat it in his robot form. What was it? Kasher asked, referring to what he saw moments earlier, a stealth drone running down an iridescent blue glider. Both aircraft exploded in a fireball somewhere near Wall Street. War games, spoke a voice in the corner of the dim enclave. Benjamin turned to the balding man, whose recessed features made his nose seem too large for his face. You're not from around here, are you? asked a younger woman nearby. Castro tried discerning what was the simplest response. The older woman, Esther, recognized him in his simulacrum form. He appeared younger than his aged, disabled human body in the Phoenix Project. If Esther was a young woman when New York City was attacked, and Castro was spirited away to the underground and placed in cryostasis, surely she must be confused. Actually, Castro looked into the tin cup, then placed it on the ground nearby. I used to live in Brooklyn. You are Israel's favorite son. Esther's wrinkled lips smoothed a little. She turned so the others in the tent could hear. He is a diplomat. Castro scanned the faces about the room, saw a few older folks, but other than Esther, none who could possibly have been born before the events that destroyed parts of New York and ravaged the surface of the world. He winced. That was a long time ago. And yet, Esther leaned closer. You don't look a day older than... You said something about war games, Castro interrupted. He turned to the balding man over Esther's shoulder. The man nodded. Most of the military moved out of the area some time ago. He walked closer, arms at his sides. But that doesn't stop him from fighting their battles. Castro searched his memory, trying to piece together the familiar and what he found in this foreign wasteland. Remote warfare, the general said definitively. The man walked even closer. I operated a United States radar station in Canada, he said. We received regular transmissions, status updates on naval maneuvers, battles. We tried to confirm, but... The man's voice trailed off, as if he remembered and repressed the painful memory. Anyway, after a while they became more and more scarce. Last I heard, Africa, the Suez, the Indian Ocean was so full of battleships, submarines, most of them just sitting there abandoned, others hoarding fuel. Castro felt his pseudo-skin tighten, but their crews, he didn't finish. Esther forced a pained grin. Some think they're still fighting the war. The others have done everything they can to get as far away from disease and radiation, to go home, to their families. Castro shrugged. Then, it hit him. Artificial intelligence. He rubbed the synthetic skin of his palm and discreetly pulled his sleeve down to cover the area where mottled, lime-green, graphene tissue was exposed. Robots are still fighting battles. The balding man across from the general started to say something, but Esther raised a hand, silencing him. We're not sure about that. She spoke with the gentle sense of authority that came with age, experience. What we do know is that you disappeared 
along with the rest of the diplomats at the UN. Your attaché, Arthur Roth, told the world you were dead. The mention of Roth's name surprised the general. He knew it showed. Roth? Arthur Roth? Esther slowly glanced around the tent. She made a simple hand gesture, signaling she wanted to be alone with Castro. As the men and women filed out, Benjamin watched weathered faces, made eye contact, trying silently to reassure them he wasn't a mutant, a threat to their makeshift world. But if he wasn't their enemy and had nothing to offer, what good was he to them? What could the isolated Phoenix Project offer the weak, the hungry, the war-ravaged, the undereducated? General Castro found himself alone with the old woman. Please, I need your help. If Arthur's alive, I need to contact him. Esther nodded, a glint in her eyes. There was nothing explicitly forbidden about Danielle Devenu's romantic relationship with Gabriel Princip. Danielle was responsible for leading the secret operation in the laboratory and communicating the successes or failures of General Castro and his team to the Phoenix Council. Princip was a computer technician without rank. Gabriel's parents were Serbian refugees living in Queens, New York when it was attacked. His parents didn't survive, and he was raised by his grandparents. Danielle was raised by her father, Jacques, a Parisian dentist by trade whose obsession with conspiracy theories became the basis for growing dissension among those from the lower decks. When Danielle betrayed her father, he was seized, never heard from again. She was rewarded by being given a job in administration. Princip's grandparents lived in the Auxiliary, the Phoenix Project area reserved for its elders. To prolong their lives and prevent disease, Gabriel was unable to see them, to visit them. He confided in Danielle that, at first, this was difficult, but he had to come to terms with it. What Princip had not reconciled was that as a law enforcement officer, he felt he contributed as much to the problems in the project as he did to their resolutions. Danielle accused Gabriel of intentionally being complicated. Gabriel smiled wryly, his square but still somehow soft features charming, inviting. They were, Danielle understood, both drawn to and pulled by contradictory forces. Loyalty, ambition, justice, loneliness. It should be absurd, she thought. But as long as they were able to share unconditionally without asking too many questions, being too needy, the relationship worked. The doors to the lift opened. Danielle wondered, would her masters on the Phoenix Council understand her affair with Gabriel Princip? Would they disapprove? Did she even care? Danielle walked into the sterile room where she was met with projected, overlapping, nondescript faces of her masters. Project Administrator Devenu reporting on behalf Administrator of... Administrator Devenu, as we're sure you are aware, this council shall now be referred to as the Phoenix Council. Danielle detected the bone structure of female council members, the outline of a man's shorn hair, but remained unaware of their identities. You are advised that since our last meeting and your last report, the central processor has selected by lottery a new council. Some members turned off the council. Others were replaced. 
the views of those remaining since your earlier reports are equal members whose knowledge of the approved reconnaissance to the surface shall hold no prestige or authority over the other members. Danielle looked at the floor, then back up at the amorphous blend of human shapes. Administrator Devenu, is this understood? Danielle grinned sardonically. Yes. Very well. It is our understanding from previous presentations and reports this has been slowed by encounters with devolved humanoids affected by radiation, poison, and disease. Despite General Castro's instructions, the select team was separated and... The shared voice paused, perhaps contemplating Danielle's body language, sensing her reluctance to speak. That is correct, Danielle confirmed. But... The venture has been... complicated by other issues. What issues? Devenu sighed. She thought of Gabriel, wondered what he would think of her if he saw her before the council, trying to keep her identity, her dignity intact, in that aseptic room of hovering faces who made decisions for everyone in the underground project. Well? What is it? The issues confronting the team are of a more personal nature. Personal issues are digressive and should be avoided. Yes, but with such unique, strong personalities unable to control events in their absence... What in creation's name are you blathering about, girl? Are you suffering exhaustion-induced indecision? It was hard to fix herself, to stare sternly at featureless faces. In that moment, Devenu bit her lip, imagined she faced those who made the decision to capture and banish her father. She squared her shoulders. Team leader, General Castro, is capable, but he is frustrated. He wants more information about the central processor's decisions. He wants background on the foundation of the project, its citizens. Static rippled through the room, flickering across the purple-hued images. And? Devenu breathed deep. The recent events between law enforcement and the underclass has put the other team members... Major McGillicuddy and Professor Bath. Yes. Logically, they would side with their friends and superiors, but they are divided. Another wave of static coursed through the room, followed by an audible, unified groan from the Council. Their commitment should be to the Phoenix Project and to their mission. No more or less. Danielle scoffed. I'm not sure that's realistic. Your job, my dear, is to ensure their cooperation, to manage their disparate passions, and... Devenu stepped forward in a rare show of metal. The Law Division beat the girlfriend of Bath's roommate. She lost a child. A life. You know from his psychiatric profile, the professor values the lives of all citizens in the project. Understandably, he holds law enforcement responsible. McGillicuddy... White light swept over the room, a quick strobe signaling Danielle to be silent. This has been dealt with. Your responsibility is to maximize efficiency for the mission at hand and to minimize interference. Frustrated, Devenu restrained herself. Give Castro the minimum of what he needs to satiate his interest and keep the recon moving forward. Pacify path as necessary and ensure conflict with the Major is diminished. Devenu half nodded. And if I can't? 
In the awkward silence, Devenu predicted what the council would say. If you are ineffective, the central processor may select another project administrator. The same is true for the explorers. Is this understood, Administrator Devenu? Danielle nodded weakly, her blue eyes staring through the holographic council at the plain wall beyond. Is this understood? Yes. As the image of the council slowly dissipated, Devenu turned and walked from the room. Aftermath, a Fire Pit Creative Group production, based on a story created by Rhett Davis, with characters created by Warren Davis, Willem DeGrieff, and Cole Hoopengarner. Written by Warren Davis, with Willem DeGrieff and Cole Hoopengarner. Narrated and produced by Cole Hoopengarner, with Warren Davis. Music composed by Warren Davis, and video production by Willem DeGrieff. Links for the sound effects used in Aftermath can be found in each episode's description. Aftermath and its story and characters are copyright 2019 by Fire Pit Creative Group. <laughs>